Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Judges. So I kind of get our head back into that space. Judges, if you remember, it recounts what's known as the Canaanization of Israelite society. As the Israelites progressively fall away from Yahweh, they become like the Canaanite nations they're meant to kick out. And all the story of the judges so far, we've had Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. Each of those judges get progressively worse. After the Gideon narrative, Gideon is the last judge who is said to bring rest to the land. And last time we were in Judges, we looked at the narrative of Abimelech, Gideon's son, who functions as a false judge. He's not raised up, and he doesn't have the spirit come upon him. Instead, he has an evil spirit upon him. So Abimelech's a false judge and a false king. And Abimelech creates an even greater spiral amongst the Israelite nation. And Abimelech has some worrying things about him. His father is Gideon, but his mother is half Canaanite. And now when we come to Jephthah, Jephthah also has some of this suspicious background about him. He has an Israelite father, but a prostitute as a mother. And the assumption is, is that this prostitute probably isn't an Israelite. And so it sets up this tension where Jephthah is a combination of Gideon's personality and Abimelech, but he's even worse. And Jephthah is the first judge after Gideon, that does not bring rest to the land. And as Cheryl read out for us, Jephthah is famous, or infamous, I should say, for one thing, which is quite horrific, the sacrifice of his daughter. And before the battle against the Ammonites, Jephthah makes this vow that whatever comes outside of his doors to greet him if he is victorious in battle, he will offer that up in sacrifice. And the first thing to come out of his door is his only daughter. And the second infamous thing that Jephthah is known for is he actually leads the Israelites into civil war. He fights against the Ephraimite, the tribe of Ephraim, the second most powerful tribe of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jephthah, he asks a question of the Ephraimites to say Shibboleth. And the Ephronites cannot pronounce the shin of the Hebrew alphabet and say sin. So instead of saying shibboleth, they say sibboleth. And there, kills them. Jephthah ends up killing 42,000 Ephronites. That's kind of Jephthah's story. It's not particularly pretty. It's not particularly nice. And it's this reminder of what happens to a society that loses its foundations. 
And the Israelites were called to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to follow Yahweh's Torah, all of his commandments. And when you reject that, this is what happens. And once again, we're confronted with the brutality of sin and its consequences. Jephthah's narrative, while we find it in Judges chapter 11 and Judges chapter 12, actually the background of it begins in Judges chapter 10. And in Judges chapter 10, we've kind of got used to this refrain now. The Israelites do evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh raises up an oppressor. The Israelites serve that oppressor nation for a number of years. Then the Israelites cry out, for deliverance. But what's very interesting here in Judges chapter 10 and setting up the Jephthah narrative is the description of all the gods. We're told here that they serve Baal, Ashroth, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. Now, if you count all those gods up, It comes to the number seven. And that's no accident. For the number seven in the ancient Near East represented perfection or completeness. And so what the narrator of Judges is telling us is that despite all the hardship that worshipping these gods brought in the past, in fact, these are the gods of the nations who oppressed them, the Israelites now are completely evil. They're worshipping seven false gods. Everything is spiraling out of control. And as we've kind of got used to it in Judges so far, when the Israelites cry out to Yahweh for deliverance, he raises up a judge. In chapter 10, verse 11, something very, very unexpected happens. Yahweh refuses to help the Israelites. In fact, he reminds them that countless times in the past, he has delivered them again and again and again. And this time he tells them, if you want to worship these gods so badly, cry out to them and let them deliver you. I have had enough. And Israel responds. They declare, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then in verse 16, it seems quite positive here. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. Okay, that seems okay. They've put away their gods. Things might actually start to improve here. But then at the end of verse 16, which has some very, very tricky Hebrew, here in the ESV, it tells us the end here. And he, that's Yahweh, became impatient over the misery of Israel. That is very, very terrifying. What's saying here? in this very, very complex Hebrew, which we try to draw out in English as the best way as possible, is that Yahweh is fed up with Israel's situation. In fact, he's impatient 
about it. It's actually starting to annoy him. Again and again and again, they keep doing this cycle. And he's hit this point where he is just impatient. He is frustrated at the situation in Israel. And the implication here, which is terrifying, is that Yahweh's going to help Israel, but it's going to be driven from frustration at their situation. He's going to deliver them from their oppressors, but they're going to get the saviour that they deserve. And in chapter 10, verse 17, with that background of Yahweh's emotional state in mind, we are told here from verse 17, the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. People of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the tension. We know Yahweh's emotional state. He is frustrated at the situation in Israel. We know here the people from Gilead are desperately seeking for a leader. You know, Yahweh's going to deliver them, but it's not going to be the deliverer. It's going to be the deliverer that the people deserve, one who is not necessarily righteous. Then verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, we are introduced to Jephthah. Jephthah the Gileadite, the mighty warrior. There you go, that's positive. This is exactly what the Gileads need. They need a mighty warrior to lead them into battle against the Ammonites. And what's also positive about Jephthah is his father is called Gilead from Gilead, which seems to suggest that Gilead from Gilead was quite, was quite a powerful ruler amongst the Gileadites. And this seems to bring something positive about Jephthah, mighty warrior with a good father from good standing from the tribe of Gilead. And then we read on, but his mother was a prostitute. There's the problem. For if we remember back to Abimelech, as I said earlier, he was the son of Gideon and his concubine mother, who was a Canaanite. Here we are getting a judge that the Israelites deserve. And with the low social status of his mother, Jephthah's brothers kick him out of his father's household. They don't want him to have any part of their father's inheritance. And so as he's kicked out, Jephthah goes to the land of Tob, which ironically means good in Hebrew. He goes to the land of good, and there he gathers a gang of scoundrels, ruthless men, exactly like Abimelech, and there he rules over them. And we're not told what type of things Jephthah does in his time of leading this band of scoundrels. But obviously he brought up, he brought up a reputation from amongst himself for being excellent at combat. For Jephthah's exploits come back to the elders of Gilead. And here they approach 
Jephthah. And they make a request for him to fight against the Ammonites, and then he can become their leader. Now, Jephthah's no idiot. And he asks quite rightly, because he points out in the past, they hated him and drove him away from his father's house. Why come to me now when you're in trouble? Now, the elders here, they don't try to justify their actions. They don't try to say, well, we didn't really mean it. They acknowledge that, yeah, this is what we have done. But now we desperately need you to be our leader. Now we desperately need you to fight against the Ammonites. Fast. And for poor Jephthah, who's been exiled from his father's house, rejected by his family, living in exile, this is the opportunity for him to become top dog, to be leader over his people, to perhaps take a position even greater than his father himself. Now, what have we noticed so far? In the cycle of judges, whenever a judge is raised, it's raised up by Yahweh. Yahweh raises up the judge. But here, Jephthah is raised up by humans. It's a warning for what is about to happen. And while we expect something terrible from Jephthah straight away, he actually does something which subverts our expectations. Rather than picking up a sword and marching into battle, he sends out messengers to the king of the Ammonites. And he asks the king this simple question from chapter 11, verse 12. What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king replies, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabuk and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. Now, this section is quite long and involved. And basically, Jephthah gives the king of the Ammonites a history lesson. And essentially, he tells him that, well, Yahweh gave them this land. For when the Israelites escaped from Egypt and as they were wandering through the desert, they sent messengers to the old king of the Ammonites if they could pass through their land without hindrance. And the king of the Ammonites refuses to. So in Numbers chapter 21, Moses and all the Israelites go out into battle and they capture the land of the Ammonites. And so Jephthah argues that, well, actually the Israelites have the right to this land. He basically just says, you should just be happy with what your God has given you. And naturally, Jephthah's negotiations fall on death is. King doesn't really care. But what is very, very interesting in his message, it comes here from chapter 27, where he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Oh, that's quite interesting. Jephthah has acknowledged the supremacy of Yahweh. He is the 
judge. He is the one that will decide between nations. And suddenly we're thinking, oh, actually, maybe this Jephthah guy, maybe actually isn't going to be so bad. If he acknowledges the supremacy of Yahweh as the just judge over all the other gods, then perhaps the fact that he had a prostitute as a mother, perhaps the fact that he led a group of scoundrels and bandits, perhaps he's actually going to do something good for Israel. And the very next thing that happens, we are told, is that the spirit of Yahweh rests upon Jephthah. And if we remember back all the way to Othniel, our first judge, when the spirit came upon Othniel, he went out and marched into battle against the fearsome king from Aram, Kushan Rish Atharim, the doubly wicked king from the kingdom of two rivers. We're thinking, well, maybe with the spirit on Jephthah, he will actually do something good. But then Jephthah disappoints us greatly. For if you remember back to Gideon, when he had the Spirit come upon him, what did he do? He blew a trumpet, called all the Israelites, and then he asked for a sign for Yahweh to prove that he was going to be victorious in battle. And Jephthah does basically the same thing. As he marches out, gathering all his men and prepares for battle against the Anemonites. He makes this redundant vow. With the Spirit upon him, victory was guaranteed. But Jephthah says, If you will give the Anemonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Anemonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, admittedly, Jephthah going into battle would have been a terrifying prospect. Jephthah had everything to lose. If he lost the battle, he would not only just lose his men and potentially his life, he would lose his status as leader amongst the people of Gilead. So Jephthah here, despite having the Spirit come upon him, a sign of his victory, he needs to make sure that Yahweh will actually do what he says he's going to do. And to ensure that, in the ancient Near East, to ensure that the God would do what you wanted, you would make a vow. And a vow, in a sense, was you were putting a curse upon yourself. If the God did what you promised, then you would have to follow through with what you said you would do. So making this vow, Jephthah has put a curse on his life. And this is the issue with Jephthah. He doesn't understand the nature of Yahweh. And as we know, Jephthah goes out and fights the Ammonites, and he is victorious. And as Jephthah triumphantly returns to his home in Mitzpah, the first thing that comes out of his doors is his daughter to greet him with tambourines and a dance. 
And in response, Jephthah tears his clothes and cries, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh and cannot take back my vow. What did Jephthah expect to come out of the doors of his house? Again, this section of Jephthah's vow is very, very difficult Hebrew. But it's quite ambiguous about what he meant. When he said, I'll offer as a sacrifice anything that comes out of my door, it's in the masculine tense, which means that Jephthah was expecting either a servant or perhaps the elders of Gilead, perhaps a welcoming party to come out of his door. Or because ancient houses in Israel had their stalls built into the house, perhaps he was expecting an animal to come out. But what's even more confusing is that when Jephthah says, whoever comes out to meet me, that Hebrew word always means two people coming to meet together. It raises so many issues. What was Jephthah expecting to come out of his house? Perhaps he thought a servant would come out and there he would be able to sacrifice him. Perhaps he was expecting an animal to come out and he would sacrifice it. But whatever he was expecting, Jephthah was not expecting his only daughter to be the first thing that came out of his And Jephthah, literally in Hebrew, says to his daughter, You have caused me to kneel. You've taken the strength from my legs and forced me to my knees. It's obviously great pain in what he feels at this moment. For if you remember when you utter a vow in the ancient world, you could not break it. Except... The issue was, in the Torah, if you made a vow to Yahweh and you could not fulfill it, there was a way out. One would simply go up to the high priest and for the cost of 20 shekels, 20 silver coins, you could annul your vow. So what's the implication is that Jephthah actually has no understanding of the Torah. He has no understanding of the characteristics of Yahweh who forbid any form of human sacrifice. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Israelites are sent into the land of Canaan, because the Canaanites practice human sacrifice. The idea we're getting here is that Jephthah has no understanding. He sees Yahweh is simply just another Canaanite god. And for tragically, this results in the death of his daughter. I think even more tragically, just the willingness that his daughter accepts her fate, she's basically like, okay, you have made this vow, therefore you must do it. And she has a single request. She spends two months in the mountains with her friends as a way to mourn her virginity, that she will never be married. At the end of the two months, the text just bluntly states, in chapter 1139. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he 
made. It's a tragic, horrific story. But then the icing on the cake is the end of Jephthah's rule. Following his great victory against the Ammonites. And in a similar vein to Gideon, who had conflict with Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, for feeling like they were left out of the battle. The Ephraimites approach Jephthah. And this time they're furious with him for what they see as a slight for being left out of the battle. And they, and they say to Jephthah that we will burn down your house for leaving us out of the battle. And Jephthah, we have met so far, he's a pretty good negotiator. In fact, there's almost like a quarter of his narrative is spent on his response to the king. We know that he can negotiate our situations. He was able to negotiate with the elders of Gilead. But then this time, Jephthah just attacks Ephraim. And they're victorious. And Jephthah and his forces capture a key point between the tribe of Ephraim and crossing into other lands, other tribal lands in Israel, the fords of the Jordan. And as different Ephraimites approach to come in and out of the land, Jephthah's guards standing there ask that simple question. Are you an Ephraimite? And when he responded with no, they are to say shibboleth. Because they cannot pronounce the sh properly, they say Sibboleth and and that's it. And that's the Jephthah narrative. And it ends here, I, ominously, in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in the city of Gilead. It's the reason why this text isn't preached on very often. It's a horrible narrative it leaves us probably with more questions than answers. It's not exactly something we read to find comfort or joy in our lives. But what this narrative does teach, as in the overall theme of judges, is the consequences of sin. The consequences of a society that rejects Yahweh's Torah, of a people who no longer reflect the image that they are created in. Jephthah represents the heart of the people. If Yahweh is the just judge of all nations, Jephthah is the judge that they deserve. One of the criticisms of this narrative is the fact that the narrator of this story does not condemn Jephthah for his actions. Some people see it as that that's what he needed to do in order to earn Yahweh's favour. Jephthah doesn't need to be explicitly condemned. We know that. When you read this story about him sacrificing his only daughter, for parents, it should make you feel sick to the stomach. And reading this account, we must ask ourselves, would you want to live in the land of Israel at that time? The answer is no. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter if it's the Canaanites coming in, or an Israelite leader. The results are exactly the same. The people worship false gods, essentially. The Israelites are still being killed. There is no difference between being ruled by a Canaanite nation and by 
and Israelites. For even the worship of Yahweh is worship just as he is another foreign God. The purpose of this narrative is to teach us is that Israelite society, in fact, all societies need to be ruled by someone that understands the laws of God. They need to be ruled by someone who is strong and courageous, one who fears the Lord and understands his commandments. I think one of the most difficult things in this narrative is that after Jephthah is clothed with the Spirit, that is when he makes his vow. But remember, Yahweh is impatient with the situation of Israel. Clothing a Jephthah in the spirit doesn't give him wisdom, doesn't transform him to holiness, doesn't insulate him from doing stupid, wicked things. All it was was a sign of victory. Israel will get exactly what they deserve, and they got it in the form of Jephthah. One of the things this narrative does teach us when we seek after false peace. Back in chapter 10, the Israelites cried out for relief from their oppressor. They wanted shalom. They wanted peace. They wanted rest. But they did not want holiness. And it's the same with us today. None of us want to be sick None of us want to be financially stressed. None of us want to have family problems. In fact, none of us want to have problems at all. And we can go to this temptation where we just see God as our Santa Claus to give us the blessing of shalom, of peace and rest without the holiness. And when you do that, you get men like Jephthah in charge. And this Christmas season, it's a reminder of who we need to be ruling after us. We need the ruler who will give the true shalom, the true peace to us, and who will also transform us to be holy. And this great ruler is described to us in Isaiah as wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. Friends, that is what the Jephthah narrative points us to. It points us to the one who will bring peace. The one who will bring us holiness. And it shows us the consequences of a society that seeks rest without holiness. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we've read this graphic and tragic narrative, is once again that reminder in Judges of the consequences of sin, of the consequences of not having people who understand what you want rule over us. And Lord, forgive us for those times where we seek shalom, where we seek rest without holiness. Lord, we pray for us as a church, as a society, as a nation. Lord, for us not to turn out like Jephthah. For us to want to desire holiness. For us to want to understand you, Lord. 
to be a society that reflects the image you have created us to be in. And this Christmas season, we know who is the one that brings that. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I ask your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.